Uh, one week ago, we baptized two of our children, and uh, we committed to being a congregation that disciples them. And we shared in last week's message that to disciple means we do two things as a community. First, we help them to build their identity on what God has already done for them. And second, we teach them to obey everything that God has commanded Jesus' followers to do. So what has Jesus commanded us to be? Jesus tells us to receive. He says, be like a branch abiding in the vine, taking in as much of God's blessings as possible. And as we receive from God, we are supposed to give hope to the world. We are blessed to be a blessing. And teaching how God wants us to help the poor is a huge part of making disciples and raising our children. So the title of today's sermon is entitled, The Right Way to Help the Poor. I've spent some time uh, working and helping the poor. I've talked to the homeless, handing out food and toiletries on the streets of New York City and elsewhere. I've served in soup kitchens, visited prisons, and I've talked to people who've made it their life mission to help the poor. But none of these experiences gives me the authority to say, this is the right way to help the poor. I've spent some time being poor. I've seen my mom cry because she couldn't speak enough English to use the food stamps that she received. And I know that being poor means feeling powerless at times. And poverty makes you want to avoid people. I told friends for years I was too busy to go to their birthday parties because I didn't have the money to get them presents and didn't want to stress out my parents. I've been poor and I've received a lot of help. But I'm not going to point to what works for me and say, that's the right way to help the poor. Because I'm not the authority on poverty. Many have endured greater hardship than me. And many have done much more good for others than me. That's why the only reason I can talk about the right way to help the poor is by pointing to the Bible. Amen? Amen? God is the authority on every subject, and I believe today's passage is a small part of God's revelation about the right way to help the poor. Most of today's sermon will be going through the what, and what are the things that God tells me to do regarding the needs of the poor. And later, I will conclude with who. Who am I that God tells me to help the poor? With that in mind, let us pray before we approach the passage for today. Dear God, we confess that we have used our ignorance often as an excuse. Because we didn't know how to help, we didn't bother to help. As a result, we recognize that we have grown hard-hearted and we have led households that are overly sheltered and unable to experience gratitude for what you've already given to us. So God, have mercy on us today that we might learn how to help, and most of all, that we might become more motivated to fulfill your command to help so that we can live in your blessing. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be made holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. God's word comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll be reading from verses 10 through 22. If you lend anything to your neighbor, do not enter his house to pick up the item that he is giving as security. You must wait outside while he goes in and brings it out to you. If your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as a security for a loan, 
Do not keep the cloak overnight. Return the cloak to the owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you. And the Lord your God will count you as righteous. Never take advantage of poor and destitute laborers, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your towns. You must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it will be counted against you as sin. Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. True justice must be given to foreigners living among you and to orphans, and you must never accept a widow's garment as security for her debt. Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt that the Lord your God redeemed you from your slavery. That is why I have given you this command. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, do not go over the bows twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, do not glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. This is the word of the Lord. How do we help the poor? Our passage, starting in verse 10, assumes that we are often lending to the poor. In an agricultural society, in order to work your field, you had to have seeds to plant. And if you went through some hard times and perhaps you used up all of your grain over the winter and you didn't have enough supplies to get your farm going in the spring, then you would go to your neighbor who has a surplus and ask for a loan. And if your neighbor gave you seeds from his surplus, you could combine it with your family's allotment of land and put your work into it to multiply that investment by harvest time. So lending is not a way of avoiding work. Receiving some funds through lending is a temporary way for poor people to work and return to a stable, empowered life. It's worth noting that the Israelite law in other places prevented one Israelite from charging interest on a loan to another. So if one person borrowed one sack of grain, then at the end of the season, all the person has to return is the same sack of grain to the, borrow, uh, to the lender. So lending is not a way of making money. It's a way of making your neighbor more productive. Again, for the Israelites in this agricultural society, lending was not a way of making money. You didn't invest by lending money out to get a greater return. Instead, lending was your way of making your neighbor flourish and recover from a temporary setback because stable neighbors build a strong neighborhood and that is how you can bring glory to God. So when Israelites let their neighbors borrow money, um, they could often request an item to be held as security or collateral. So if your neighbor had you know, hard times, but they had jewelry or tools in their possession they didn't need right away, you could take that item as security until you were paid back. And keeping records of loans 
and encouraging accountability so people pay you back, that's just good practice. However, verses 10 and 11, it limits the lender's ability to pressure the buyer. It says, if you lend anything to your neighbor, do not enter his house to pick up the item he is giving as security. You must wait outside while he goes in and brings it to you. So just because you're doing this generous thing of lending doesn't give you the right to go into their house and be like, oh, I want that as my security or that. You have to give privacy to the people who are in need. Privacy preserves their dignity and their safety. So this means if you can't stop being nosy or anxious, passive-aggressive and pushy, then that means you are not fit to make loans to your neighbors. You're not doing anyone any favors if you can't do it patiently and cheerfully. So exercising your financial power to bless others and help them recover, it's a skill. And if you want to practice this skill, I recommend starting with this organization called Kiva, K-I-V-A dot org. You're supposed to donate money to Kiva, and then Kiva identifies people among the global poor who will be empowered by a low interest or free interest loan. And 94% of these loans are paid back so that the money that you donate can be used again and again so that more lives can change. Lending to Kiva is easy. You might see a project you like and be like, I'm gonna fund $25 for this. And that person, as their needs are met, is able to work more productively that life has changed, the loan is repaid, and the cycle continues as more loans are given out. Lending to the global poor by donating through an intermediary like Kiva, it's great training for learning how to use your money to help others while being cheerful, patient, and not nosy, anxious, or passive-aggressive. Once you've practiced in these ways, perhaps you'll be ready to lend money to people that you do know and for those of you who have gone through it with friends or family, you know that this is tricky. This is hard. If you do lend money, you have some responsibility to be assertive so you can provide accountability and oversight. But you have to do it in a way that is humble and respects the borrower's right to have privacy. Communicating assertively, stating your expectations and needs, but doing it humbly to guard the borrower's dignity requires practice. And if you're lending to the very poor, sometimes there is very little that you can take as security or collateral. And verse 12 tells us we have to have special consideration when lending to the neediest people. Verse 12. If your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as security for a loan, do not keep the cloak overnight. So this is someone who doesn't just have no seeds to plant for the spring, They've already sold all of their primary possessions. All they have is the cloak on their back. Back in those days, a cloak was often the most expensive item a poor person owned. During the heat of the day when the person is working and sweating, the person doesn't need the cloak, but the temperature in Israel drops, drops drastically at night. And so verse 13 explains that the lenders should return the cloak to its owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you, and the Lord your God will count you as righteous. So even when you have this legal right to hold on to the cloak because it's the security, you have a spiritual duty to exercise compassion. So in these cases, 
there would be this daily routine or interaction. The lender brings the cloak in the morning and says, hey, thank you for the loan. I'm going to pay you back. Here's the cloak as security. And they go and work really hard. And then at night, as it gets cold, the lender takes that cloak to the borrower and says, hey, you great job. I see you've done a lot of work. And here's the cloak. Have a good night. And it creates a routine where the poor can receive encouragement, accountability, and uh, just kind of some coaching, perhaps, from a neighbor that is more empowered. Lending well is a skill, and we have to practice. Through practice, we learn to give and lend without becoming anxious and controlling. And through practice, we learn to say, hey, no, I can't help with that without feeling guilty. It's always awkward to talk about money with people who have more than you or with people who have less than you. Honestly, it's hard to talk about money with anyone, amen? But it's only through practice that we are able to get better at exercising our financial strength to be good stewards of our surplus in ways that bring empowerment to our neighbors. In ancient Israel, getting a loan helped people who had land become more financially stable so that they could become empowered to pay it forward to others around them. But some Israelites who hit rock bottom didn't have any land, or there were also refugees from other nations who were homeless. So these people are too poor to be really helped by getting a loan. They can't start their business with a loan because they have nothing to start with. They needed help from other people in a different way. And these people generally worked for others as hired hands, hired laborers. And God's people are called to make sure that these poor and destitute laborers get justice. Verse 15 requires the people who hire laborers to pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. And if you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it would be counted against you as sin. So when I think about what verse 15 requires, it means that even if they're weak and even if they couldn't sue you because they don't have the money to hire a lawyer, you have to honor your commitment to pay your workers. And it also says you have to pay them their wages, which implies that there is a fair minimum standard of wage that they're owed, that you're supposed to pay them that, not exploiting them because they have you know, no, no recourse. In Michigan, um, there are people who are migrant farm laborers who come through the farms and pick the produce every year in the summer. And many of these are um, people who come from Central America who have difficulty with the language and culture. And they are vulnerable to being exploited. So when they come to the farm workers camp, there are legal aid societies that meet them there to make sure that the employers are honoring the contract. There are health screening groups who visit to do health screenings and dental screenings to make sure that they are comfortable physically as they do this hard work. And there are many church groups that visit. Um, the church I was with in Michigan, we would go with clothing donations, gifts, and we would organize games and worship services so that the laborers, as they're going through um, their town to town, that they'd be able to celebrate at the end of each day. Now, the church I led in Michigan has been serving in the migrant for farm workers' um, 
community for decades every summer, and they join a network of allies who make sure the laborers receive compassion and justice. One aspect of ensuring justice is to make sure that kids are not working in those fields. So volunteers work with local school districts to make sure that a summer school is offered to the children of migrant farm workers. These are kids who are often not used to speaking English, and they are moving at least three or four times every year, so they're usually very behind in their schoolwork. And we would invest in tutoring these kids because we wanted them to have more options when they are older. And because the church was committed to this ministry for decades, we were able to see some kids who went through the program graduate college, live more empowered lives, and pay it forward. And this is how we try to fulfill verse 16, which says, parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. Uh, which means that we can say that some parents, they deserve their hardship and their poverty because individually or as a group, they made a lot of mistakes. However, kids that are born into poverty, they often did nothing wrong. And according to God's just justice, they must have a chance to have a more stable and empowered life. And so we are called to educate and empower and mentor them. So the people who are most vulnerable need a special consideration. And in verse 18, God tells the Israelites to care for the poor because as an entire people group, they too were once oppressed. Verse 18, always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from your slavery. That is why I have given you this command. It's possible for the memory of poverty to be fresh for you, as it is for me, and to have that memory, instead of leading you into greater compassion, it leads you into greater exploitation. There are a group of first-generation immigrants who abuse more recent immigrants as they get settled into this country, thinking, we went through it too, so you have to pay your dues. This attitude, I believe, is everywhere. There are doctors now who complain that current residents are soft and uncommitted. They want future doctors to go through the same abusive cycle they went through during residency, and they wonder, why are we letting them sleep? People that were bullied in the Korean military, they want others to go through their same hardships and ask, why is their military service so short? Those who suffered under the expectations of oppressive mothers-in-law, want to make sure that future generations go through something, and they say, in my day, that kind of treatment wasn't even considered harsh. Even at church, those who have been ignored in decision-making processes and had their good ideas ignored just because they were younger, they oftentimes do the same to others who are younger now, repeating the sins of their elders because hurt people tend to hurt people. It's our own version of justice that we cling to. If I went through it, you have to go through it too. Because if we think that we got through our hardships on our own, that we pulled ourselves up from our suffering through our own effort, 
then we feel entitled to watch and enjoy other people go through the same suffering. We only develop a heart of true justice. We only start wanting to eliminate hardship for all when we develop a heart of compassion that wants to empower others when we believe that it's not by my effort, but my God redeemed me and rescued me from my slavery. So that is why it is important to pray. If you just tough it out in your hard times because if you just think, okay, I'm just going to work hard, grind it out, even if you get empowered, it will deform your character and you will want to put others through what you went through. It is only the person who prays, who lifts up their prayers to God and sees God intervene with grace that develops a testimony that allows them to say, life is tough, but God got me through it. And that person who believes that God works for their good will become the type of person who extends a helping hand to others. I was yelled at and physically abused as a child. I was often emotionally manipulated. I didn't pray about it very much. I just figured we all have to go through it. It's just having, it's not being abused. We just thought of it as having Asian parents. Uh, and it's true. Understanding our abuse and context, it allows us to know that it wasn't personal. Our parents were just a product of their culture. And that understanding helps lessen the trauma that we feel so that we can make jokes about it in high school and college about our experiences. And we generally treat our kids better than the way we grew up. But I found that if I don't pray for my healing and process my trauma with God, then I do not see God's redeeming hand in my past, and then I end up repeating the same sins of my parents. I often tell my daughter, at least I'm not as bad as my parents. I had it so much worse to justify whatever she finds abusive, cruel, or unfair in my treatment of her. We tell ourselves we're not as bad as our parents, but that's not enough to stop our kids from getting hurt, and that's not going to be enough to lessen our guilt before God if we deform the character of the ones that we are supposed to love most. If we do not invite God to tell us the story of how God was there for us in the midst of our hardship, if we do not experience the love of God defending us in our hardship, advocating for us, giving us opportunities every day, and if we are not praying enough to experience that God is listening and working for us every day, then we will end up bullying others and enslaving others once we have authority. So we are called to experience the redemption of our forgiving and liberating God. Experience Jesus' grace by confessing your sins and experiencing forgiveness. Experience the Holy Spirit's counsel by sharing your trauma and experiencing your groans become translated by the Holy Spirit and your heart becoming unburdened. Experience the Father's care and love as you experience your dreams and desires being actualized as God opens the blessings of heaven. Once you go through this with prayer, you will testify that the triune God of the Bible has redeemed me. And that is how you will become someone who is able to show that you are saved by showing compassion unto others. Amen? 
The difference between a soul that's redeemed by God and a soul that thinks, I did it all by myself, is shared in verse 19. When you are harvesting your crops and you forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. So what is a bundle of wheat? It's a big armful of wheat, and it yields four dry pints of grain. So if you, as an ancient Israelite, forgot to bring in a bundle from the field, it's the equivalent of accidentally dropping a $100 bill. No matter how rich you are, it is always worth it to go back and pick up what you dropped. But God is saying, if you forgot it in the field, don't go back to get it. Don't consider it your loss, but assume that there is God's plan at work. God is working through your forgetfulness to give someone else what they need. When you want to kick yourself for being inefficient and forgetful, then make that your opportunity to remind yourself that God is using your weakness to give opportunities to the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you take every excuse to give the poor a chance to have a bonus, the chance to prosper, then you are giving God every reason to pour additional blessings into your life. That's what verse 19 means. You can have peace while walking away from the bundle when you believe that your life is guided by a God who cares for you. Right now, some high school athletes are dreaming about turning pro. Some high school scholars are already taking college-level classes. And if they believe that their future depends on them maximizing the return on every opportunity to make themselves better, then their achievements will make them only more anxious and more selfish. So God, I think, is saying to the high school student, if you finished your work, don't assume that you're supposed to take another advanced class to prove that you are better than others. Consider tutoring your classmate so that he can catch up. Or in a sport, if you're doing well with a skill, take time to help your teammate and take time to celebrate other people's growth. Notice how they're doing. And when you take every excuse to give the vulnerable a chance to receive care and prosper, then you are giving God every reason to add additional blessings to your life. Right now, young adults are trying to make more money so they can spend more or retire earlier. When we live trying to guarantee more for ourselves, we tend to become workaholics that ruin our health and ruin our relationships. So God is saying to that owner of a small business, if you have worked hard six days a week, don't assume that you're supposed to claim more market share by working during the Sabbath. Let other people work and prosper so they can get a stable life. When you take every excuse to give those who have less resources a chance to catch up by hustling, then you are giving God every reason to add blessing upon blessing on your life. I want to be clear that God is not saying, just be lazy. Whatever you drop, don't worry about it. It's not like God is saying, be lazy and passive. God is saying, instead of becoming a workaholic, use your energy in other ways. When the Holy Spirit counsels you and lets you know that you've done enough in one area, then let the Holy Spirit guide you to spend your energy in another. 
There are times when I have to pull myself away from a sermon and say, I've, it's not perfect, but I've done enough here. And then I go to do the dishes so I can make small talk with my wife and catch up on her day. There are times when I have to stop emailing when I'm at home so that I can spend some time catching up with my daughter. There are times when I'm supposed to rest, which doesn't mean I become passive. I'm supposed to use my energy in a different way. And it feels inefficient at times. I think I can become more empowered if I just do a little bit more here. It feels like you're leaving a bundle of wheat in the field. But you have to trust that as you live this way, that God will find a reason to bless you more so that you will testify, not because I worked so hard, but because God was so gracious, we are succeeding. This attitude is reiterated in verses 20 and 21, where it says, When you beat the olives from your olive trees, do not go over the bows twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't clean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. So the way that you would gather olives is you would take a branch and you would hit the tree, and all of the ripe olives at that point will drop from the tree so you can gather them. But the olives that are not yet ripe, the late ripening olives will stay on the tree. And uh, what the person is saying is, don't go back and shake down the late blooming olives if you own that olive tree. Instead, leave it for the foreigner, orphan, and widow. When the Israelites would harvest olives, if they shook the tree, about 70% of the fruit would fall if they did it at the right time. And when they go through and harvest grapes, the same thing happens. Some of the grapes are not yet ripe, so they have to leave it. They would probably get about 70% of the harvest. So instead of going back to collect it all because it's mine, you're supposed to assume that God owns it, and God wants you to leave it for others. This is a way of living where you don't put the burden on yourself to achieve prosperity by outdoing everyone around you. You are supposed to work hard, but you're not supposed to do everything humanly possible. You're supposed to be happy when you have enough. You're not supposed to always go back and try to get more. And that is how you pace yourself. If you kill yourself at work, going over the same thing again and again, with a diminishing rate of return, you're going to contribute to an unhealthy work environment for everyone. So don't do everything you possibly can. This is like such an anti-Asian statement. Don't do everything you possibly can. Live in such a way that you contribute what you're supposed to, but you allow other people to contribute and have meaningful work too. If you're working like crazy, even when God has already given you a stable life, then you are missing out on many other things God wants you to do with your time and energy, and you're making it harder for the desperately poor to survive. If you forget a sheaf in the field, think it's God's way of giving others a bonus. If the olives or grapes that don't fall the first time you harvest it, then leave them, because God will take what feels like an inefficiency into a blessing for others and really for you. So don't cook during a vacation. Take a rest and go out and eat and tip well, amen? Instead of interpreting those moments as an inefficiency, budget your time and money so that you can intentionally do these things and be okay. The way that you help the poor is to live with plenty of margin so that you can give yourself time and energy 
to help others. Stop stripping the fields bare. Stop trying to get extra credit for yourself. Just do the portion God wants you to do. Then chill and relax and let God do the rest. Special word to mothers. Don't try to be super mom. Just do 70% of the work you can imagine yourself doing. Leave some olives and grapes for others. If you do everything perfectly, efficiently, and become the best TikTok version of yourself, it's going to oppress other moms. So do what the Spirit guides you to do and trust that God will take care of the rest. That is how you'll raise kids who are grateful for what you do without becoming overly anxious and desperate to meet impossible standards that you would otherwise set for them. Amen? Make sure your kids know that you have time to pray and meditate on scripture. When they see you, they shouldn't always see you working on your next project, another email, trying to squeeze in a little bit more work into your day. They should see you joyfully making time for fellowship. They should see you joining the Princeton Volleyball Tournament team. Amen? <laughs> maybe, maybe. They should see you going to your neighborhood version of a musical or going to help a neighbor with their lawn. You can model for them a productivity that is more generous and easy because it is rooted in trusting God who is for you and with you. When the most privileged students and most talented students are working themselves to death, then what hope is there for the less talented students? Our work ethic should not be about making us get everything that we possibly can. It must mean making sure everyone has meaningful work to do. We should be countercultural. We should break free of our cultural workaholism, and we should save parts of our time to spend with family and friends and with the Bible. We have to keep telling ourselves the Bible stories. If my life understanding is formed by the story of Elon Musk or other self-made wealthy people who overcome hardships with their hard work, who did what nobody else was willing to do to have a life that no one else can have, then that story that I meditate on will make me anxious and tight-fisted and proud. But if I tell myself the stories of the Bible about a liberating God who pays our debts and breaks our chains, sets us free, and if I know that I am loved and led by that God, then I will begin to help the poor in effective and humble ways as described in today's verses. And that's what verse 22 means. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. God is God. We are not. I'm not even Mr. Big Shot. I'm just a slave that was set free by God. I am a sinner thankful for grace. When I can remember who I am, then I no longer feel the temptation to be nosy or bossy. Instead, I can give others privacy and respect and invest in others without overstepping my boundaries. God is God, and we are not. Instead of working constantly to make myself better than others around me, I begin to let God train me to get good enough to help others next to me. The right way to help the poor. It's to help them to work, but our efforts to help will only work when we follow the lead of the God who is in control and writing all of our stories. Would you pray with me? God, would you help us 
to know that helping the poor is not doing something by our own hard work and power to fix the problems of the world with our solutions. No, help us to know that helping the poor means speaking the truths of the Bible and knowing that the story of liberating God applies to me and allowing you to call us into a story where we know when we've done enough for ourselves and we can start doing more for others. Help us to know that helping the poor is not a burden to put on top of all the other burdens that we have to carry. Help us to know that you're telling us to take on your yoke, to follow you, and to walk with you day by day. As we do so, would you help us to show a Christian way of helping the poor of the world that is humble and allows your grace to change lives. These things we pray in Christ's name.